One of the problems is that almost everyone that we talk to, they don't have enough help in this area. You know, we're not making enough security analysts to keep up with the current demand. That's a fundamental part of this that we're really trying to crack, is that a lot of these organizations that we talk to, they know that they have APIs, they don't really know how many they have, they know there's new ones springing up all the time, but they don't really understand what the risks are associated with that yet. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss modern web development with maintainers, founders, and developers. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor and developer for startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter, at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we've got Rob Dickinson from Resurface. Rob, hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so first question, I'm curious, like, who are you? What do you do? How did you get here? <laughs> I'm an old school nerd. I'm a CTO and co-founder at Resurface Labs, which is a company I started in my basement um, while I was working at Intel. And it's great. We've, we've uh, really made a, a big impact in the API security space. And it's really exciting to see that space developing. Yeah, it's always a good time to talk about APIs and API security. Yeah, yeah, cool. So started in your basement. How long ago did you start Resurface? So this is my second observability company. My, my first company was a web observability company. So we were monitoring website traffic and web-based transactions. And we ultimately sold that business to Quest Software. We were part of Dell Software. And we saw the writing on the wall. We saw that you know everything was moving cloud-based and moving API first. And so I ended up leaving, and I, I went to Intel for a few years. But I really never, you know, I always thought that there was a, a huge need around API observability. And so I originally started working on Resurface as a portfolio project, you know, just to just to build out my portfolio and. Um, I was curious about doing data capture directly from the APIs instead of using a packet sniffer. And so I kind of had a, a bit of a thesis there that I was following. And um, yeah, and one thing led to another, and here we are. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, when I think about API security, yeah, there's a lot lots that comes to mind. So I'm curious, like, how are you approaching the problem? Yeah, so the thing about API security is... The, the starting point is that you, you want to take standard, you know, well-known security practices that have been around for a long time, you know, things like the basic OWASP guidelines and NIST guidelines, you know, making sure that you're doing those things, but then also recognizing that the API landscape does introduce some new requirements and some, some new threats to, to be aware of. It is a cultural shift in that way. So it's kind of this great mashup between old and new. I mean, I think what what we're doing at Resurface is, you know, NIST and OWASP have been talking about sufficient logging and monitoring for a long time, you know, starting with things like intrusion detection systems. What we're doing is we're providing a full audit trail for all the API calls. So it's basically like a surveillance camera for your APIs. But there's a lot of ways, you know, when, when people talk about API security, it's really important to understand kind of what facet of that they're talking about. Because some folks talk a lot about perimeter security with respect to APIs, you know, what your firewall is doing. Um, some people talk about endpoint protection in this context. Some people talk about bot detection, 
which always makes me kind of grin because if you have an API, like everything's a bot, <laughs> like it's all software using your API. You know, it's not like you have clients on web browsers, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's all those kind of different facets of, of API security. But what we're really focused on is the observability part of that, that if you, if you don't know what your APIs are doing with each and every transaction, then you're going to be vulnerable in all kinds of ways. Okay, so like I, I skimmed through the uh, the landing page uh, and checked out. I didn't actually use the product and I installed it in my APIs. Uh, but I'm curious, like, how are you basically? Um, is there alert set up for being able to be notified if something's wrong, or are you basically are you coming through and looking for weird instances? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So we're building a data lake out of all of these API calls. So it's a database and it's searchable. But our goal isn't just to collect all this data. The goal, you know, to your point exactly, is to turn this into meaningful signals for the organization. So we're bringing in these API calls. We're continuously scanning for different kinds of threats and failures and, and quality issues. You know, something that's failing now that could be the, the basis of a future attack, you know, as well as the real, you know, hair on fire kind of attacks. And then alerting the organization through the channels where they already want to receive that information. So if you're using Jira, if you're using Ops Genie, PagerDuty, if you're using a SIM, um, you know, our goal is to, to put those alerts up to into those systems. We talk about Resurface as being kind of an analyst in a box. You know, one of the problems is that almost everyone that we talk to, they don't have enough help in this area. You know, we're just we're not making enough security analysts to keep up with the current demand, let alone where the demand is going in the future. So having automation and intelligence that helps with that, it helps focus your, your human assets. And so again, our goal is really to, to bring those to high level incidents that really the, the organization can respond to and then routing it to the right person in the, in the organization. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like where I'm sitting right now is like I have a, of a company and we have a couple APIs that uh, one's public, one's private. And um, so far, like I, I was able to throw together like the earliest version, had another contributor and now employee who's put the better version out there. But the conversation around security is something that we haven't really put a lot of thought into. My employees definitely put thought into it. I put zero thought into security. Like I was like, uh, let's just make this work. We'll be the first user of the API. It works for us. We don't have a ton of users on that API currently. Uh, we're the main users. So like, what is first steps for me to, to think about using things like resurface and or even just starting to consider how to implement this in a, my API? Yeah, so one of the questions I like to ask you know, when people talk about private APIs, not to, not to pick on what you said there, but, yeah. but if, if that's an API that's running on Azure or Google Cloud or Amazon... There's actually nothing private about that. Um, (laughs) And so that's kind of the first thing to recognize. Like these environments are actually incredibly hostile. I mean, not not saying that to impugn those those platforms, but but basically when you deploy an API on on one of these major cloud platforms, and it doesn't matter which one, by the way, you are putting your API into a known IP address range that attackers are continuously scanning. So we've done these experiments ourselves where we put up honeypot applications in the cloud and we use resurface to record who shows up. And this is before you've run your first ad, before anything links to that. 
you know, you're not driving any traffic to that API, right? You're going to see your first attack in about 30 minutes, and you're going to get about 150 attacks per day um, against that endpoint before you've done anything, right? So we've really shifted from you know, a world where you would expect attacks or expect security problems at a certain level of success or a certain level of notoriety. You know, look, people are showing up to, to hack what we've got. You know, we must be doing something right. People must be really paying attention. I mean, that was true in the <laughs> that was true years ago, right? Yeah. But now, I mean, there's there's really, you know, there's a whole cottage industry around scanning these networks, finding vulnerabilities. You know, there's big money in it. So that's part of what's driving all of this. And I think another thing that kind of goes with that is that for a lot of the folks that we talk to, unless you have a surveillance system for your APIs, you, you actually don't really know whether you're being attacked or not. Yeah. And, and there's kind of a cultural element there, too, that you have to acknowledge. I mean, APIs are great. I love APIs. But we've actually taken a step back in terms of visibility. When we were doing web-based systems, you know, anyone in the company from the CEO on down could go to the website, fill out an order form, make sure that worked. Did I get the right email back? You know, was that transaction successful? Now that we're API first, well, who in the organization is actually capable of doing that? It's, it's usually just development. There's tremendous amount of gatekeeping around that. So that's a fundamental part of this that we're really trying to crack, is that a lot of these organizations that we talk to they know that they have APIs. They don't really know how many they have. They know there's new ones springing up all the time, but they don't really understand what what the risks are associated with that yet. Yeah, I, I bring up the the private API thing. When I say private, we haven't done anything so to lock it down as of yet. We do have plans in the moving that towards that direction. Private is basically we haven't shared it publicly. Right, <laughs> that's, that's our <laughs> which is I know doesn't actually qualify as being private because like look at the network tab and <laughs> and like find out the URL and you're good. But I didn't realize the whole cottage industry of like folks just really scanning IPs for things that are hosted in the cloud. I'm not in the business of like setting up my own cloud. So yes, we're hosting on a cloud provider. Um, so that is now concerning. So it sounds like resurface is something I should probably be looking into like yesterday. But I'm curious, like the target market, who is the, the focus for as far as resurface uh, customers? Well, we're really focused on API providers. So folks like yourself that are putting a lot of time and energy into building and operating those digital properties and who are ultimately you know, responsible for the, the success of those and making sure that those, those work properly, that they're not exploited, you know, kind of both sides of that coin. One of the things that's really fun about what we're doing is Resurface is the only truly first-party API security system of our kind on the market right now. So when we do our data capture, all of that data is collected in your environment. You're not sending all of your data to resurface as part of our solution. And that's a big difference, right? Um, And very counterintuitive to us. I mean, we started actually as a multi-tenant SaaS. That's how anybody in their right mind would start building (laughs) software today, right? Yeah. But we just kept running into folks in financial services, in government, in healthcare, are kind of our three big verticals. And there's such an emphasis there on data provenance and data jurisdictions and not, not doing that third-party data transfer. 
so that's actually been a really fun part of this. We can run truly air-gapped, you know, basically wherever you're running your APIs, we'll put the, the database and the collection agents in that same environment so all of that data stays local. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask about that because you mentioned passing the data lake. So I guess as resurface, do you analyze the data and you, you send back what it looks like or be able to like, what I see is Greek, like are you translating that to me to say, okay, this is, <laughs> this is the English words that associated with what's happening? Yeah, we do a lot of high-level scoring of the data and high-level summaries of the kinds of attacks that are going on. I mean, I what I always hear for is I, I listen for folks that say something like, I wish we could improve our security practices over time, or I wish I could get my development team to care more about security. Like the the easiest way to do that is to say, okay, well, let's have a feed where those issues show up. So like the same way that your QA team reports problems and your development team fixes them, let's do the same thing for production security. You know, with with respect to these APIs, right? You really want to look for those API specific signals, and and keep it on that footing. But in terms of the process, the development team wants to handle, or the the security team wants to handle, they want to use the process they've always had. So populate that data up into the the tools and workflows that they're already using. We think is is really the the best way to go. An example that's like that. Um, that I really love is the the folks who are doing vulnerability scanning as part of the CI/CD pipeline, right? It's like the same kind of a thing. It's like you can you can admonish your people to care more about security and hey, you need to run these security scans and that needs to be an extra thing that you're thinking about, or you can just integrate it with your pipeline where it's done automatically and you get the res- the reports that you're expected to respond to, um, and you kind of know what you're know what you're getting into. So that's really the kinds of processes that that we're really driving to, you know, just normalizing this domain of API security so that you can tackle it with with workflows that look very familiar. Okay, yeah, yeah, and like a lot of tools are coming out when you talk about the sort of attaching the CI/CD pipeline, where you get notified when the build is run. Maybe there's some sort of pattern in your JavaScript, or there's some SQL that's exposed, or whatever it is to, um, for those tools. Are you all servicing like if there's like a known these like sort of these again going back to the cottage in- industries like if there's a known vulnerability in like GCP, um, are you keeping track of that or is this mainly for my my tools my API itself? It's really the latter. So okay. what what we're doing specifically with Resurface is we're we're runtime security. Got it. Okay. So that data ends up being very useful for shift left, where you want to then be able to design your APIs to be more resistant to those kinds of attacks or those kinds of failures. But we're really starting with that 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 runtime perspective. And one of the analogies that we use, you know, to to help people understand this, right? Because these things are dark is to use the analogy of running a bank. If you were running a physical bank, right, you would have a security guard at the front door, and that's kind of like your firewall, right? That's going to keep out, you know, folks who are obviously there to rob the bank. Hopefully your security guard is keeping them out, <laughs> right? But once those people come into the bank, you have an audit trail of what they're actually doing, and you have surveillance cameras to, to tell what they're actually doing. So just like in football, you can go back to the game tape and see what actually happened and see where the areas are where, where you need to be improving, right? It would be a terrible, terrible bank 
if I walked in the front door and then I could access anybody's bank account and do any kind of transaction that I wanted to, unfortunately, there's too many APIs that we see that they're implementing like basic authentication or they have basic firewall protection, yeah. but they don't really have a way to audit each and every transaction. And so that means you don't really understand how you're being attacked. You don't really understand what leaks are happening through those APIs. But then there's the other side of that, which is when a customer actually experiences a problem, you don't know what happened in that case either. So yeah. you're having to interview that angry customer about how things broke, and you know nobody likes to, to do that. So kind of being able to go back to that objective record, you know, this is what happened in all of those cases. So now we have ways of drilling down to, you know, what were the data-dependent conditions, the state-dependent conditions, you know, did did things go right, did things go wrong? Yeah, I mean, this may be a, a naive uh, summary, but like, uh, it sounds like you can prevent people from being on the front page of Hacker News and being sort of like <laughs> vulnerability zero, of like, hey, this is so-and-so got exposed to their API at runtime. Here's here's the case study. That's what I want to avoid. And if you could prevent that, all the money to you. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things about this that's really interesting, again, just kind of coming back to the cultural things that are shifting as we're moving towards more towards APIs. So a lot of people, when they start thinking about API security, they immediately think about perimeter security. Yeah. Right. I, I'm going to need. A, I'm going to need a firewall. I'm going to need a firewall that understands API level traffic better. You know, I'm going to build a better moat around around what I'm doing. Right. But the thing that's fascinating about that is that when you interview these companies about why they're doing these API transformations, the overwhelming reason is to be more open to be more open to your customers, more open to your suppliers, to your partners, to your integrators, for all kinds of different software now that can be written against your platform. It's all about openness. And I think that puts the whole concept of perimeter security in a little bit of a different light. And another way of saying that is, it's all about your use case uh, around this too. Like, if you have an API that's truly only used by your mobile applications, Maybe that's a context where you can you can hold on a little bit to that idea of a secure perimeter and trusted clients. But if you're uh, if you're trying to be like Twilio or SendGrid or one of those folks, those APIs are open to everyone. And I think that puts that idea of, of perimeter security in a, in a completely different light. So perimeter security is still important. You know, still think about that as part of your your balanced security diet here. But that really can't be the the only way that you're securing. And unfortunately, we just we see a little bit too much emphasis on that. That that the way the way to secure your API is you'll have a WAF and the WAF will block the, the attackers and, and you'll block them automatically and, and that's the way that you're actually going to secure things. For example, well, what about the attacker who signs up as a paying customer? This is the Peloton attack, right? Yeah. And we're starting to see this more and more and more. Um, your firewall will not prevent those cases from, from happening. Those, those people are going to breeze right through your, your firewall. So you better have some other layers of protection to, uh, and observability to, to trip up those folks. Yeah, fascinating. And um, I think I, 
unfortunately, I have to wind down the conversation and head into picks. But uh, yeah, I th- definitely could talk about this for a bit more, uh, mainly because I feel like I might be a good user for this. Um, so <laughs> I'll be in touch. Uh, oh, actually, I'll have, I'll, have my, uh, I'll have my people <laughs> reach out to your people. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, so um, appreciate that. Uh, I want to actually point people to how they can get started or how they can even get connected if they're intrigued by this conversation thus far. Yeah, resurface.io is the website. We offer free trials. Um, we're Docker-based and Kubernetes-based, so we're very easy to, to get up and, and get going. Um, you can start on a laptop if you're a developer. You can start in production if you're an ops person. Really, any any way that you want to go with that. We also offer services and, and white glove um, installations for folks that want to do that. All of our documentation is available to the public at resurface.io slash docs. So if you want to go in and see what the process looks like and what you're in for, we've got it all laid out there and trying to make it as easy as we can. Awesome. Appreciate that. Thanks, Rob. And uh, so I want to transition us to picks. So these are jam picks, things that we're jamming on. could be music, food, technology-related. Everything's relevant. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll go first. Uh, my first pick is actually Dolly 2. It's actually getting opened up for anybody can sign up now. It was like on a, uh, a waiting list. Are you familiar with Dolly 2 and this whole yeah. open AI type, um, what do you call it? Machine learning, automation, generating generative images. I, I love that the, the progress has been made. Um, and it seems like in the last year, I think it's really picked up a lot of speed, maybe because maybe is it because compute is getting cheaper because of the supply. I don't know. I have no idea what, what's going on right now, but it seems like a lot of VCs are pointed toward this. Uh, I know Nat Friedman actually has his, um, there's like an automation VC fund that this got spun up. So I think uh, like everyone's moving from Web3 to now pointing to like, how can we do generative uh, images and stable diffusion type things? I've been using it for generating avatars for some of my accounts. Like I've been using the same avatar on Twitter since I think my junior year of college. So I've just never changed it. So I have that same avatar everywhere. But in some places, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a different image. So I've been like generating Dolly paintings because Dolly 2, Dolly, Salvador Dolly. <laughs> uh, but there's like random stuff of like melting pizza and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I'm just like generating art images and seeing how I can sort of expand my sort of scope of art. Actually, it'd be fun to print these and put them on behind me. I think I... I don't know who owns the rights if I can print those and put them on my wall, but <laughs> I've actually enjoyed what what Dolly's been producing. And uh, if anybody's interested in the use case, I might even create like a Discord where we can just throw <laughs> throw our art art pieces up. Yeah, I think the AI generated art movement is just fascinating. What's going on there right now? It's really really interesting. Yeah, it's actually so I ran into a, a founder here out in San Francisco at like um, happy hour drinks for YC people. Anyway. Besides the point, his actual product, which I already forgot the name of, uh, he was generating similar like the generative art, but for games. So like if you're playing like Grand Theft Auto, and you're like uh, generate a uh, what do you call it? NPC? So it's an NPC generator on the fly, and you like type in um, man holding pizza drinking coffee, and like he'll generate a man holding pizza drinking coffee that you could place in the game. Uh, I thought it was actually a really good concept because, um, like, these sort of like world building, expansive universe. Like, imagine you're like, hey, you know, it'd be cool if I could walk into this tavern and like this person uh, is doing this thing or playing this song or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's a good use case. It sounds extremely expensive, but that's their their company and that's what they're working on. That's awesome. 
Cool. Do you have any uh, picks for us? Um, you know, one thing I've been doing during the the pandemic is um, I picked up the drums. Oh, nice. And so one of the things that I've actually been playing with is there's a couple now AI-powered solutions out there for removing drum tracks from music that you like or, or isolating out, right? Which is such a fascinating use of this. I mean, you know, traditionally you do that just with filtering out specific areas of the spectrum to, to trim those things out. Yeah. Um, but they're really getting into much more sophisticated ways of, of splitting those audio tracks. So yeah, and then just the whole idea. So I'm, I'm doing electronic drums, of course, which, you know, because I have a family and they would never put up with it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so also kind of like the electronic music control side of that and like the MIDI signaling and all of that. Like it's, it's so amazing what you can do now for, you know, very, very little money with just a, a standard laptop and a, you know, a, a cheap kit. So yeah, that's been, that's been super fun. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I learned drums in college actually. And, um, it was mainly cause I was playing music and I got garage band and I could play all the other instruments and drums was like something I wanted to add to that. But college me would be super, super excited about the fact that I could <laughs> remove drums from tracks and, and play over them <laughs> uh, to perfection, which, uh, I'm a decent drummer. I'm not amazing. Yeah, I'm terrible. So it's it's all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hats off to you for picking up a, a, a new skill during the pandemic like time. Mine was bread making, so I did that pretty pretty heavily. And uh I probably did a well, I guess I did YouTube as well as another pandemic project, uh, which I have sort of put on the shelf. I I switched over to my company's YouTube and uh that's been going well so far. Nice. Well, Rob, appreciate you coming on talking about the resurface. Uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued. Uh, lots of stuff to, for me to think about, but I'm thinking everyone who's listening, same thing. So uh, definitely reach out, resurface.io. And uh, listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter, at Jamstack Radio. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor and developer for startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. 